Welcome to episode 296 of the Reform Brotherhood. I'm Tony. And I'm Blake. And we are proud members of the Society of Reform Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing, man? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. So just uh, in case anybody's wondering, Jesse did not uh, change his name and voice. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but we had some production scheduling conflicts, mostly on my, uh, my fault. And uh, Blake was kind enough to jump in and help out so we can get an episode out. So how are you doing, Blake? Good man. It was kind of a long, dreary day at work, so that message was like a little, a little bright ray of uh, of sunshine. And uh, given the topic, it's something that you know is uh, important to me. And I've been, you know, catching up on the Building Tomorrow's Church conference that just happened um, with James Dolezal, Matthew Barrett, Sam Renahan, Richard Barcelos, and just rock solid um, theology proper from uh, those Baptist brothers. And it's been a joy to listen through that. And, and the panel discussion was worth the whole the whole audio with Matthew Barrett and James Dolezal kind of like going back and forth and slightly nice. dominated the conversation. And apparently everybody just makes fun of Richard Barcelos. Nice. So well, I yeah, that's, that, but, I mean, uh, even I know that just Baptist things. It's just yeah, Baptist I things. I'm out of the loop. Just Baptist things. Uh, what about you, man? Yeah. I How mean, I'm day? doing great. Um, I, I was traveling this last week and, um, so I was back home in Minnesota, which was a nice visit. Um, I was home, uh, for my mother's memorial service, um, which was not a pleasant reason to travel, but it was nice to be back in the Midwest. And, uh, it was funny. My, um, my sister, uh, Jane has moved to Florida many, many years ago. And so her grandchildren, um, who were co- who came with her for the service, um, have never, never experienced standard Minnesota lingo. And so my other sister, Marcy, uh, came into the room and asked one of the kids if they wanted a pop. And the kids looked at her like she was speaking, I don't know, Swahili or something. And they had no idea what she was talking about. It was pretty funny. It was, it was a good time. That's amazing. That's the whole story. Cross-cultural. Yes. Uh, cross-cultural missions right there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We need some Leslie like Newbegin the, to help me figure that one out. Yeah. That's like when the, the PCA guys show up at a, at a SBC or 1689 church. We're like missionaries from afar. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we're going to get into our topic, which we're going to discuss. We're kind of in this ongoing theology series. Uh, and right now we're kind of in the heat of Christology. Um, two weeks ago, Jesse and I kind of introed the topic. And then last week, uh, Blake and Justin and I did a little bit of application. This week, we're going to start to broach the topic of what it means for Christ to be fully God. And we're going to approach it from a particular angle. So if we don't cover everything, we might come back and redo some of it next week when, when Jesse and I are back together. But before we do, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into some affirmations and denials. So Blake, why don't I let you make the choice here? Do you want to start or do you want me to start? I'll, I'll start. I'll, I'll take the lead here. All right. And uh, you're going affirmations first or denials first? I'm going to start in the neg- in, in the negation. Nice. Uh, point of negativa. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am denying wasting your time arguing with a brick wall on social media, oh, man, particularly on Twitter. About. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to name names. I'm just going to reference, uh, I made the mistake of replying to a thread on Twitter where somebody was commenting about, uh, a quote from John frame, basically saying why s- strict subscriptionism to the confessions is bad. And 
and lends itself to anti-biblical, like all these things. It was, which is oversimplifying Frame's position, but yeah. And the person was saying, actually, this is wrong. Like the confessions are great, and I just was like, yeah, like they're awesome. You know, like Westminster One Ten and London Baptist literally says the final authority is Scripture. Like we're just the inter, like this is our what we think faithful interpretation. And this person just got into a long fight with me and basically persistently proved the point that right. subscriptionism is useful because they were like, well, the PCUSA affirms the Westminster and, and they're a possible. And I was like, well, actually you're proving the case because the PCUSA to my knowledge was not requiring any kind of meaningful right. subscriptionism and wasn't disciplining teaching elders that were violating the confessional standards right. and went way off the rails. And he was, so it was just like, going against a, a brick wall. And then I was like, well, what's your alternative? Like, is every independent church going to crop up and come up with a new subpar mediocre statement of beliefs that has to expand every year because they realized they missed something important yeah. and didn't think about a certain segment of doctrine. So I'm denying, I guess that's a twofold denial. I snuck another thing in there. I'm denying uh, this anti-confessional streak um, among like Calvinistic Baptists and, and it's, I don't know. I don't say as much in Presby circles, but some Calvinistic Baptists that are weirdly anti-confessional, and yeah. then, um, and then just don't waste your time fighting with people on social yeah. media. It's dumb. I know better. And I, and as soon as I got into it, I was like, oh man, this was a mistake. Yeah. But well, yeah. we've we've told you. I I know who you're talking about. I think <laughs> I probably would have been able to figure out who you were talking about, even had you not mentioned the person's name uh, in our conversation. Uh, yeah. and yeah, it's, it's just not worth it. And, and you're right. It's, it's funny because, um, frames argument basically is that, um, you know, strict subscriptionism, uh, violates the sola scriptura principle because it doesn't allow men to teach doctrine outside of the confession that they've, uh, they've subscribed to. And I'm kind of like, yeah, that's like the whole point is, <laughs> is that you're not allowed to teach doctrine outside of what you have you know, sworn vows saying you believe is the biblical doctrine. And I think if you really summarize it, it's frame, frame doesn't like strict subscriptionism because it doesn't allow him to teach his idiosyncratic views and still consider himself a Presbyterian. I mean, that might right. be a little bit uncharitable, but I actually don't think it is all that uncharitable. Um, cause there's a number of points where he just flat out contradicts the, the confessional positions and basically then just says, well, yeah, but like, I'm not in a strict subscription, um, uh, denomination. My ordination wasn't under strict subscription. So yeah, I, that's a really good denial. I think, I think arguing on Twitter is just bad news, uh, which is why yeah. we're not on Twitter anymore. And then this particular argument about confessionalism and you're right, the PCUSA, um, the, the first kind of foray out of confessionalism was the same conflict actually that um, caused uh, Machen to depart was that yeah. they were, you know, the missions boards were receiving funds, but they weren't being held to any sort of doctrinal standards. It wasn't specifically confessionalism, um, but it was sort of a broader idea of doctrinal standards. And so that was kind of the the first indication. And I think that when the PCA, uh, ironically, given the current circumstances, when the yeah. PCA left um, and branched off into their own thing, I think that was actually around, specifically around uh, strict subscriptionism 
uh, and good faith subscriptionism. Um, not that they were ever, they were never a strict, strict subscriptionist denomination. Um, but this was before good faith subscription, which is what they have right now was yeah. kind of baked into their constitution. They left, um, because they didn't feel that the PCUSA was actually holding anyone to the confessional doctrinal standards. So yeah, it's baked into the PCUSA that their whole downfall was an, an abandonment of confessionalism. So you're, right. uh, your interlocutor is not um, building a, a solid wooden frame of argument there if you're I see what you picking up what I'm putting down. Yeah. And and the funny thing to me, too, was that then he went on to talk about how, um, well, the SBC doesn't have any governing documents and they're the most conservative denomination. And I was like, is yeah. that really is that really what you want to go with right now? Yeah. Like, Especially since it's it's like the most famous clip floating around right now is um, Albert Mueller defending the. Uh, male ordination by appealing to their confessional documents. So yeah, it's a mess. That Rick Warren clip just hurt my soul. Yeah. I don't know if we'll you just, we'll just bake that in as a, as a standing denial is you know, <laughs> Rick Warren and that just everything going on right now. Yeah. I actually, I, because I, I like, I'm a glutton for punishment. I decided to listen to the whole six minute speech from SBC. Yeah. It was bad. Yeah. It was yeah. so bad. Like I thought it was, I thought just the quote was bad, but the whole thing was just like, look at this thing that I built and how great I am and yeah. how much like it's, it was very much the, like I'm from Paul and I'm Apollos. Like, right. It was exactly what yeah. we're taught not to do. <laughs> and he did it. So, he just and he did, did it. it and he got applause. But then again, Greg Johnson got applause. Yeah. At General Assembly. So it's true. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah. This is the world we live in. But at least Presbyterians were, were decent and in order, even when we're a circus. Yeah. So, it's a decent know. and an order circus. <laughs> it could be worse. Speaking of circuses, so I'm going to yeah. hop on to my denial. So, as I mentioned, I was traveling this weekend and um, I, for a number of reasons, I was supposed to fly back on uh, Monday, uh, which this is the 21st, and I was supposed to fly back on June 20, uh, 20th, which was yesterday, which was Monday. And for a number of reasons, I made a last-minute change uh, to my flight, and I flew back on Sunday morning instead of Monday morning. And um, just, I'm denying air travel right now. So it's, I don't know, have you flown anywhere recently? Several times, and I, I, I don't even know where you're going with this, but I also deny air yeah, travel. Yeah, I mean, air travel, <laughs> unless you're paying for really, really nice air travel, is never, it hasn't been particularly pleasant for, I mean, a number of years. Um, but it was just, it was the, the airports were a circus. Um, they're short staffed everywhere. The first, this is the first time it's ever happened to me. So I was on the 520 AM flight out of Minneapolis and Minneapolis, uh, airport MSP is one of those airports where you really do need to get there about two hours ahead of time usually, um, mm -hmm. or you may not make it through security. There's been times where I've showed up like an hour and a half ahead of time and I'm like sprinting to my gate after I get through security for like a first thing of the day flight. It's a busy hub. Uh, I got there at the normal time I usually do maybe a little bit earlier cause I had to drop off a rental. Usually I'm getting a ride. And so I, I can just kind of you know drop off at the door and run in, um, and the security gate wasn't even open. I walked up to the security gate and they were just it was locked down and they didn't come they didn't even come in until like four fifteen so like an hour before the um, flight was supposed to go, and then of course, you know your first flight of the day out of a major hub usually is no problem. Well, I land in Chicago for my layover and I walk up and the first thing I notice is they've changed my gate from a main one of the main gates to a sort of way off out of the way gate and I was like, "Oh, that's not so good." I get there and I was like, "This this gate is like easily a half mile walk. There's no shops. It's like this little rinky-dink terminal off the main area." 
And then, of course, we sit down and you hear the announcement. We're looking for some uh, flyers to volunteer to take a later flight because your flight has been downgraded. And now there are 175 booked passengers and there's only 145 seats on the plane. And I was like, oh, great. And I, I booked my flight like 12 and a half hours earlier because I changed it at the last minute. So luckily, um, or providentially, I suppose enough people volunteered to take volunteered is not really the right word. We're bribed by the airlines with significant amounts of travel vouchers, um, to take a later flight. I was able to get on the flight. It actually, I don't think anybody was bumped off the flight. So I guess kudos to Southwest for having enough of an incentive to get people to, to spread things out. Um, yeah. They were offering like $1,200 to move your flight. If oh, I wasn't wow. traveling home for a specific reason that was time sensitive, I would have, I would have totally taken the voucher. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just a rough experience. And then of course you're, you're bumped down to a smaller plane and because you book at the last minute, you're in the middle of the seats. It was just overall, it was a, a more unpleasant than usual experience. And I talked to a guy at the airport. Um, this was Sunday morning, right? I'm there at five. It was like four 30 in the morning because my flight leaves at five 20. And I'm talking to this guy who was clearly agitated and frustrated, but we strike up a conversation and, you know, Hey, where are you? Are you traveling home? Are you traveling away? Where are you? He's like, well, I've been trying to get a flight out of here since five 30 in the morning on Friday. So he went to the airport at five 30 on Friday. He stood in line, went through security, got to his terminal, sat at his terminal until right before the flight was going to leave. And then they like, he literally was watching the board when they canceled it. And so he stayed at the airport all day on Friday, trying to get that flight, get a flight out. Couldn't get anything. So they sent him to a hotel. <clears throat> stayed there all day Saturday, did the exact same thing, couldn't get a flight out. Finally, on Sunday morning, he just showed up at the airport, came through the terminal, and went to a different airline and booked a ticket, um, and they were able to get him out of there. So I don't know his name. Uh, I know he was traveling home. He was very frustrated. Um, I think he had kids, and this was Father's Day, so he was at, he was motivated to get home. Um, but yeah, it was just a rough, rough time. It was a bad time. I, I, I had a minimal impact, but it was still a really anxious, like an anxiety driving experience to be sitting there, not knowing if you're actually not going to be able to get on the flight or not. So especially uh, on a layover, because like if I, if I didn't get on a flight in Minnesota, okay, I just go back to my sister's house and sleep on the couch for another night. But like when you're in, in a, another city, you don't know, you don't know what kind of hotel they're going to put you up in. You don't know if it's going to be a safe part of town or a dangerous part of town. It's really stressful. Um, way more stressful than I thought it would be. Oh yeah. That happened to my brother. He was flying back from a, a work trip and ended up stuck in Detroit, which is, which is just, yeah. it's not the place you want to get stuck and have to go to a, no. a hotel. So he had a, he had a, he had a bad time. My wife and I, a couple of times have flown this year and we got stuck with just really bad weather. There's yeah. one layover where we ended up stuck in an airport for hours yeah. and I was worried that we were, you know, unfortunately we were able to fly out, but it was just, we got home so, so late. But at the same time, I, I'm reminded of uh, a sketch. I think it was, I think it's Louis C.K. before he got in trouble for <laughs> being kind of gross. But yes. he uh, he said, "Okay, everyone always talks, complains about their air travel." And it was just kind of a funny flip. It's like, right. and then did and then did you fly through the air like a bird? Yeah. Did you experience the miracle of human flight? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Even yeah, though I complained true. the whole time that's because that's what we do. Because we're human beings and we like to complain about things yeah why well, you got to get all serious and spiritual and and sanctified on me just let I me have my thing uh, and a very unsanctified comedian yeah there you go well what what are you uh let's move on to affirmations what are you affirming tonight mr um, blake i am so keeping in the same vein i'm affirming this absolutely gorgeous uh crossway publication because crossway is like 
yeah, we can make money by publishing all these different versions of things. It's a reader's edition of the Creed's Confessions and Catechisms, um, edited by Chad Van Dixorn. Um, and it's just, if you have any of the readers Bibles from them, it's just absolutely stunning. So, um, this is Canons of Dort, but it, for you guys on, uh, those that can see the stream, it's just really pretty to look at. It feels nice. It's a nice hardcover book. Yeah. Um, and it's like, you know what, these are things. And, and the reason that I'm affirming that is not necessarily a plug for Crossway or, um, anything particular, but it's a way to read the creeds and confessions that feels more contemplative than just, yeah. I love reform standards and I use it every week when Justin and I podcast, I have it up now. Um, I, I have it on my phone. I have like Bibles with the confessions in the back. I have little pocket confessions, but none of those items are really great to just sit down yeah. and read through. And for me, this is fantastic resource. And my wife and I have been going through the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so it's, it'll be fun to go through, um, with this just nicer reader's edition. It's a, it's an easier font on the eyes. Uh, it still has the proof text and everything. So you can, you can get into it, but I'm a huge fan. Um, and again, to my denial, uh, creeds and confessions are important. And, and kind of where I left that thread was if we're going to reject it, we should have a very good reason for why we're leaving the tradition and why we're departing from these very pretty broad ecumenical type statements, even in our reform, especially where like the 1689, the three forms of unity and the Westminster are in agreement, which is most of their doctrine. Yeah. Uh, we should have a, a pretty good provisional reason for why we're saying, yeah, I think they're wrong on this and I'm going to deviate on, you know, whatever chapter 28 or whatever it might yeah. be. So yeah, um, for sure. So yeah, re if you've never read them, like go, first of all, read the creeds and then read our reform confessions and catechisms. So there's my yeah. annual plug for that. That's a good one. Yeah, this is a, a handsome looking book and um, it is very similar to the the um, creeds and confessions that uh, they've included in the uh, back part of the creeds and confessions Bible that they published. Um, looks yeah. like it's a little bit expanded and the formatting is a little bit different. Um, but I think you're right. Sometimes we read... This happens with the Bible too. So I don't have a, a reader's edition per se, but I don't actually really like Bibles that have a lot of sort of critical apparatus um, attached to them. I don't usually, I don't typically use a study Bible. And I find it's because it's so hard to read the scripture and not get distracted may not be the right word, but, but diverted by the other things that are available. Um, actually, I, this isn't going to be a Logos bit, but one of the things I love about Logos is you can turn off um, the non-biblical text and there's various levels that you can do. So you can just turn off, like, this is one of my biggest pet peeves, like red letter Bibles. I just hate red letter Bibles. Um, you can turn off that feature so you don't have that, or you can turn off the footnotes. You can turn off subject headings. You can turn off chapter headings. You can turn off first numbers. You can turn off everything except the actual biblical text itself. Um, so when I want to just sit down and read the scripture and not not necessarily study it from like an academic perspective or prepare for a sermon or prepare for the podcast. What I'll do is I'll just turn that off. And then you just have a nice clean uh, text to read and you can just read it as for what it is for a book, for a, a text without a lot of that extra chatter. So it's good to in with the confessions. It's the same thing. It's good to not have all that extra critical um, apparatus. So, Cause that's actually one of the things I don't think people realize is that the proof texts that you're getting, depending on where you're, where you're going aren't necessarily the proof texts that uh, the divines included when they wrote the confession in, in the case of Westminster um, or, you know, the, the 
um, the proof text that the OPC uses or the PCA, which those are the same by and large as what the originals were. Um, but those proof texts are not actually part of the confession themselves in most cases. They're not considered constitutional or binding. So having something, having the proof text is, is handy, but being able to sort of read it in a way that those proof texts don't intrude themselves into your, into your reading, I think is really good. Yeah. And just to plug on that, I've, so I was a hundred percent that hipster that saw the Bibliotheca Reader's Bible. Oh, I have it. College. Oh yeah, dude, I love it. And uh, I like the translation. I like the the form of it. And then when Crossway came out with their ESV readers, I got that too because I'm a nerd. And uh, I like the translation. Yeah. I I don't necessarily like the format as much because it still feels a little bit clunky. But it, it, they're both nice. But yeah, it's sometimes I want to sit there with my study Bible with all my references and yeah. have all my you know, resources behind me and a commentary. And other times I just want to sit down and read. And I, I found, especially reading the letters of Paul and reading the Old Testament narratives, the reader's Bible format comes alive to me because when I don't have chapters and verses in the way, I just get swept up into what's happening, just like I do with a novel. And I find connections at a more macro level that I didn't necessarily catch when yeah. everything's divided in chapters and verses. Uh, the letters usually read in one in one go. And then the narrative it's easier to just like keep flowing with it and not, it doesn't feel so truncated. Um, and yeah, chapters and verses are extraordinarily useful. If we didn't have them, it would be a real pain to try to communicate the Bible yeah. to anybody else. But for just personal devotion and for for absorbing scripture, I, I'm a big fan of reader's editions. So yeah, yeah. Nice. it's a very pro prolonged, uh, prolonged affirmation, but here we oh, are. That's not even anything. You know how long sometimes our affirmations are. Oh, I know. I love it. It's like half the show some days. Yeah. Uh, you did say something though that made that made me laugh. You were denying red letter Bibles, and uh, there was a. I think it was it was either was it Fred Sanders or Scott Swain. I think it was Scott Swain on Twitter. It was like new new Bible idea. Let's have a Bible a black letter edition. Yeah, I did see this <laughs> where all all the words of the Holy Spirit are in black. Yeah, I saw that. I think it was Fred <laughs> Sanders. That sounds like a Fred Sanders thing. Yeah, he and Scott Swain have a weird Twitter bromance, and it's really fun to watch. I'm but I'm totally here for that. It's good. It's good. So I'm affirming something that um, is particularly appropriate for tonight's episode, but just in general, I think is a good resource. We're going to do more work on this um, because it is such a good resource, and we've been in touch with the publisher who's going to help us out with some promotions and stuff. Um, but the uh, PNR has just published this. Um, series called the Christian Essentials series. And there's one uh, entry for each person of the Trinity. So there's the attributes and work of God, there's the life and work of Jesus and the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. And um, they're relatively straightforward. They're easier reads than what you might get with other um, kind of doctrinal treatments of what I'm normally calling like the metaphysics of the Trinity or something like that. Um, but they also have things like discussion questions at the end. They're published by, these are, um, what they did is they took video lectures that they were using third third millennium ministries was using as sort of like pastoral education for um, learners in other countries that can't necessarily go to a full seminary. So they were producing these courses and they, it's not just transcriptions of the lectures. They took the content from the lectures and they converted that into book form. But so you also have access to some of the videos and then also they have quizzes available. So once you're done reading, reading a chapter, you can go and take the quiz. Um, they're master's level courses that have been distilled into these books. And I think that the average person who listens to our show, who's a kind of an above average thinker and reader, I think, um, would probably be able to make their way through this pretty quickly, but it's relatively straightforward. It's not, um, as much 
kind of in-depth technicality that you might get from other single volume doctrinal entries. But I think it's just a really strong uh, basic foundation for these three doctrines. So the one specifically for um, Life and Work of Jesus is written by um, R. Ra McLaughlin. When I first read it, I thought it was R.A. I assumed it was like initials, but it's Ra is his first name. And Christopher Cottle. Um, I don't know who either of those people are, but the the book itself is actually quite good. And um, like I said, it's it's clear, it's accessible. Um, they're relatively inexpensive because I believe they come in, in mostly in paperback, but you can get them in electronically as well. Um, and then again, they have these videos and they have review questions. And then they also have these quizzes that you can use to sort of like check your knowledge. So check it out. You can get them directly from PNR. Otherwise, you can purchase them anywhere books are sold. Um, and it's called the Christian Essentials Series. And there's three of them. One for the attributes and works of God, life and work of Jesus, and then the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. I yeah. love it. It reminds me of those... Um... I'm looking at, it's also crossway the uh, short studies in systematic theology yeah. that's got um trinity attributes of god uh deity of christ and they're yeah they re- those are really small books but they're so accessible and yeah. so easy to get into e- even easier than all the stuff from uh from Matthew Barrett which I think is it's like that right balance of technical and a little bit dense but explained in a way where you don't have to come to the table with a lot of theological knowledge um which is kind of how Barrett talks too yeah. when I when I when I interviewed him and then listening to uh, Building Tomorrow's Church as opposed to James Dolezal who talks exactly the way he writes and uh, is if anything more dense in his uh, lecturing than he is in the books. Yeah, but uh, it's it's great. It's a joy. I'll just say this too. Maybe this will either make people want to buy the book or not want to buy the book. Though, and first of all, the whole set's available for thirty-seven dollars, which is a is a really good price for um, a kind of a three-part set like this. Um, yeah. The author of the attributes and work of God is Richard Pratt Jr. Have you ever seen a picture of Richard Pratt Jr.? I have not. He looks strikingly like Luke Skywalker. So if you uh, do like the uh, the Star Wars movies and everything else associated with that now, uh, then you could learn systematic theology from Luke Skywalker, basically. So if you don't, then forget everything I said and just buy the book because I don't think the book has a picture of the author and it's not actually written by Luke Skywalker So or Mark Hamill even. Yeah. You know, that's making me now. Now I have to do at least one little sound effect in here. This is the way. <laughs> this is the way. Yes. I was going to yeah. say, uh, we need to get like um, a sound clip of the. I was going to go into Tashi Station and buy the power <laughs> converters. You know, like father, like son. I was, I was commenting on someone because I've been watching the Kenobi series on Disney Plus. Yeah. Don't at me. And, um, it's like Hayden Christensen got so much crap for his performance as Anakin Skywalker, but he was supposed to be a whiny petulant teenager and he did a great job at that role as someone who is cocky and powerful and unbelievably obnoxious yeah just like with obi-wan the whole time like kid will you just sit still and shut up oh this could be a whole different episode i don't remember i don't know if you listened way back in the day of the original sorp lineup but we had um nerd gospel podcast and uh, this could be a whole episode of that so the other thing about uh, Anakin Skywalker, right, is and the reason that Hayden Christensen's performance was actually quite good in those three movies, particular well, the two movies, particularly in Return of the Jedi or Revenge of the Sith. I mean, um, so you have to think 
This is a little kid who started the Jedi training too late. He had already started to develop emotional attachments and a full emotional life. And then he had to artificially suppress that. So this weird wooden suppressed like flat affect is actually his character trying to mimic the, the relatively flat affect of the other Jedi. So it's actually, it was actually a pretty brilliant, um, thing. And then like the second one, he has no idea how to interact with anybody. So the weird stuff about like, I hate sand, it gets everywhere. Like he doesn't have anything else to talk about with this girl. He doesn't know anything about anything. So yeah, he gets a lot of bad press for that. I I haven't seen the episode yet of, uh, Obi-Wan that has most of the actual Anakin information and Anakin scenes. Um, other than like the, the couple scenes where you can see it's Hayden Christensen before he puts the Darth Vader stuff on. But I've heard that his, his, characterization is acting is actually pretty good. Um, I mean, granted, like it's 20 years later and he's like a developed actor and he's got more experience and he was, he was a pretty young kid, um, during the first prequel trilogy, but yeah, I think he gets a bad rap. I actually don't hate the prequel trilogy nearly as much as I'm told that I'm supposed to. Yeah, I don't either, but I also love the last Jedi and will die on that Hill. Nick Vizzle and I have both died on that Hill multiple times. Uh, so don't at me. I like The Last Dude. Jedi um, as long as you don't try to think too hard about it. That's fair. Because, you know, we live in an era now, we should just jettison the whole episode. This is just going to be the episode. Um, We live in an era now where, like, you'll you'll pick a part, and I'm the worst at this, right? We have our own little, like, Marvel MCU chat, and I have, have like, all these theories about the MCU based on, like, the colors of, a like, a magic spell or something a whole universe that I've constructed based on the colors of the way magic works. But they have straight up said that the, uh, the people who made episode seven, eight and nine, that they weren't working with some pre-developed plan for the trilogy. So all the stuff that you see in episode seven that you think pays out in episode nine or in episode eight, it may pay out, but it does so like retroactively. Um, There was no, there was no setups in episode seven. It was just, this is the movie we want to make. They wanted to make like almost a shot for shot homage remake of new hope, which they did it. They did an excellent job of that. Um, But then episode eight comes along and was just, I think out of the three was pretty hot garbage and just sort of like screwed up the story in a lot of ways, even though it was an enjoyable movie. So episode nine, they were like, JJ, you gotta, you gotta come back in and at least make something out of this. And he did a great job. You just have to basically pretend that most of episode eight didn't happen. Um, and I love it. It's almost like they make fun of that. I mean, spoiler alert, the movies have been out for years, so it's too bad, but they almost make fun of that in that opening crawl where they're like, somehow Emperor Palpatine returned. Like there's no explanation. There's no yeah. statement. It's just somehow it happened. Um, it kind of reminds me of that thing in, um, uh, there's a couple spots in the Bible where it's pretty clear that the author of the scripture is trying to make sure you know that this was not the agency of man, where there's yeah. that one where it's like Ruth just happened to be just happened to be in the field of Boaz by chance. <laughs> and then there's that one where it's like and a man randomly drew his bow and shot in the air and he struck the king of Israel. So it's kind of yeah. like it, Palpatine just happened somehow to return. We don't know how I was going to say or that's how open theists think God is like, yeah, there you oh, go. Whoops. I I will always dunk on uh, at least two groups, mostly because for a brief moment, I was a part. Well, for a long moment, I was a part of one of them. And for a brief moment, I was a part of the other, which is open theists and Unitarians. But, you know, 
here we are. Which, well, speaking of which, yeah, that was a good transition. You're better Thanks. at this than I am. So we're going to take a little bit of a different approach tonight. So that the topic of tonight and kind of the next step in our Christology sequence is to talk about how Jesus or the Son, rather. We'll talk about why I'm making that distinction. It's not because I'm an historian, but why the Son is and always was and must always be God, fully God, truly God. Um, we're going to talk about that, but we're going to talk about it from a little bit of a different angle. So Jesse and I have done episodes on this in the past. You can look it up. Um, we did the original Systematic uh, Theology trilogy, um, series. We talked about this. We've talked about this in a variety of ways. We talked about this when we talked about eternal generation. So we're not going to necessarily retill all that ground. Go back and listen to those. If there's things that still need to be said, um, then Jesse and I will probably cover some of this again in, in a little bit more didactic method um, when he comes back. But what we want to talk about, so last week on the episode, Blake kind of mentioned he came out of this sort of Unitarian heretical um, background. He just mentioned it again now. So we wanted to sort of take tonight and talk a little bit about how Christ being fully God as a central tenet of the Christian faith, we wanted to, I wanted to sort of have Blake on to reflect a little bit about his background in this heretical movement that just denies um, denies that. So Blake, if you want to maybe kind of, as far as I understand it, this isn't one of the famous cultic groups. This is sort of like a no-name, non-specific Unitarian group. Um, sounds like it has a lot of affinities with Jehovah's Witnesses, from what I what I understand from talking to you. But do you want to give us maybe like a an overview of this? Is are is there a name we would recognize? Are there specific doctrinal tenets or statements that we would know about? So I'll yeah I'll back that up a, a couple steps. So the the group that I came that I grew up in um, and and I'm affiliated and like most of the people that I've known most of my life are there, and a lot of people that I'm still in communication with and still like go to barbecues with are in this group, right? They were, they themselves were one of many splinter groups that came away from um, a, a group called the Way International, which basically gained popularity during the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s. Um, and they kind of stood out because comparatively you had um, the liberal mainline denominations that just had no answers, you know, to our earlier conversation, the PCUSA, and like you had people, you know, people who I knew who were when I was a kid, they were adults who had grown up in Baptist churches, in Methodist churches, and in some cases, Presbyterian churches. And when they would ask as young people, you know, is Jesus God? Is They would try to understand these questions. Instead of being pointed to a catechism or a confession of faith, the pastor or the, the authority figure would just kind of say, well, yeah, we, we, you know, we say that, but do we really, you know, nobody really understands it. And instead of giving a real like Christian answer to mystery it was just sort of this throwaway well we just we just say that and that's how we understand and or they'd give a or they'd give one of the terrible analogies i won't go into all that so the way came out of that ironically the man who started the way international um was himself ordained in one i forget which one it was but it was i want to say evangelical and reformed it was some reform denomination that had obviously long since gone liberal and he got really novel with his theology obviously uh and just completely broke away from it but i thought it was kind of ironic that he started in a, in a quasi reformed like i think presbyterian denomination that, that liberalized and then as i was leaving the splinter group from that you know i i came into the pca uh and into confessionalism but um this group then became affiliated with others. So there's the Church of God, 
national general conference, national conference, um, which is just a, a loose, it's kind of like the SBC in that it's a loose affiliation of uh, Unitarian groups. They do have a lot in common with Jehovah's Witnesses, though they would deny certain distinctions. But obviously the big one and the same thing that they're going to have in common with Mormons as well is, is this or in some ways, specifically the JWs, is uh, this denial of the deity of Christ. And so these groups, there's a whole bunch of them around. There was another splinter from the way. And, and so there's this kind of like weird attempt to reunify, but everybody went different ways. Some went very antinomian, some went very legalistic. Right. Some went very theological and heady and exclusionary, and others went very free grace, cheap grace, like... Uh, we don't need theology. We just need to love each other and love Jesus. Yeah. So they, they yeah. kind of went, you know, which, which we see in, in Christian circles too, but they, and so they're trying to pull all this together, but they don't really have anything in common except what they reject, which is Trinitarianism. So you end up with a lot of weird things. So like, this is their affirmation, which I would have affirmed, you know, growing up from UCA. And then I'll read the, the statement of faith on Christ specifically from uh, the group that I was a part of. But Unitarian Christian Alliance says, we believe and proclaim in accordance with scripture that only the father of Jesus is the one true God. The unique man, Jesus, is his Messiah Christ. God, the father sent Jesus, gave him his message, empowered him and endorsed him with deeds of power, wonders, signs that God did through him. Jesus obeyed God, laying down his life so that we can have the hope of resurrection to eternal life. God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, making Jesus the Lord under the one God. Now, what's funny to me about that is that is such a broad statement that I'm pretty sure the Jehovah's Witnesses could affirm it, along with the people I grew up with, along with all these groups that have, like some of them have a more progressive covenantal bent. Others are very dispensational to the point of they would read Romans. And if a verse said to these people over here, They'd say, well, that's not to us. Like not, the gospels weren't for us. Revelation isn't for us. Uh, it's only the epistles and only the sections of the epistles that aren't. Yeah. So, so it was just weird. And then this was the statement that I basically would have affirmed for a lot of my life. So this is talking about statement of beliefs from where I grew up. And it says, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He is the man that all the prophets foretold regarding he is that prophet Moses declared would come. So, so far we're good. Like this is, I'm in agreement so far, but we're missing something very important and we're going to see that they're rejecting it. He is the descendant of David, the son of God. Jesus, the Christ was anointed to be the high priest and king. He died on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins. God raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies. He will remain there until he returns as king who will sit on the earthly throne of his father, God and rule the world on God's behalf. That gets a little that's a little weird. Yeah. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is the undeniable proof that he is the son of God. Agreed. He is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the father, but by him. Agreed. He is the son of God, not God, the son. And yeah. so so what is happening here is is going beyond Arianism. Because um, Arius, to my understanding, still still believed the son was divine, but le- like a, a subordinate right. divinity, right? Where the Socinians later on we're more in this full-throated Unitarian view where Jesus is just a creature. He's a very yeah. exalted creature, but he is creaturely. Um, and that was one of the biggest conceptual transitions for me was seeing that scripture very clearly delineates between God and not God. And that only God has the attributes of God, has the honorifics of God, uh, does the deeds of God, sits in the seat of God. And I forget, there, there's a whole acronym. I, I forget what the other one is. Um, has the names of God, right? 
And only God can have those things because there are, there's divinity and there's not divinity right. and there's no middle thing. Um, and that was no, never anything that I really understood growing up. It was just, well, if Jesus is God, and I, there's a whole pamphlet here and we could kind of go through some of these statements. I'll just read one or two. If Jesus was God, then how could he have a beginning when God has always existed? So we proof text. And it's what's so funny to me is we reject creeds and confessions like wholesale, reject Nicaea. We're like Apostles' Creed. We're cool with that. But we reject Nicaea, Chalcedon, Athanasian Creed, any kind of confession, confessional statement. And then we go and make a really bad one. Right. Right. And then uh, how could keeping increasing in wisdom when God's understanding is infinite? Uh, why did he say, I can do nothing of my own while God can do all things? And so we're taking kind of random verses that are particularly we're talking about the incarnation. And I know this isn't specifically about that, but we're like taking Christ in his incarnate state and then juxtaposing that with the eternal attributes of God, which is like kind of the whole point yeah. of the incarnation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, it's a while. I mean, that's like a little, a little teaser into it. I, I have these things pulled up, but it's a, it's, it's pretty fascinating to me to look back and see where I've come from. Cause I, I was telling you guys last week, I literally wrote a paper in college, yeah. rejecting the Nicene Creed and saying why Christians should just stop doing that and just read their Bibles, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's something that you this is a little bit of a different direction than I thought I was going to go. Although it always comes back to this when we're talking about um, Christological and, and theolo theologically problematic theology proper. Yep. This this is the same reason that people like us are so concerned about the EFS crowd or the the sort of newer, I don't know what you want to call them, anti-classical theists. I don't know what they would call themselves. I don't think they have a, like a name for themselves. So it's it's hard to even know how to refer to them because we always want to refer to a group with a label that they would themselves recognize and embrace. So I'm not sure what to call the sort of James White school that is starting to question or outright reject certain what's you know what historically has been settled theology proper in terms of divine simplicity and all that stuff is what you notice is um, the same kinds of questions that these people are asking to challenge the full divinity of Christ are actually the same arguments that some of the EFS people are making to push the economic realities of the mediatorship of of the son backwards into eternity past into the divine nature of the sun. It's the same confusion between um, the, the, the sun's role as mediator in reference to mediator, even prior to the incarnation itself in reference to mediator, uh, confusing that with the sun's reality. I don't want to say role because that's not the right term, but the sun's reality as truly God. And so that's why it's so important. I think you calling out that creature, creator, creature distinction is so important is that, and this is actually where Arius, not to get too technical, this is why Arius can still say that the son is divine, but not necessarily uh, affirm that he's eternal, right? He's still, Arius is known for saying it, and I think accurately known for saying that the son is the first and greatest creature of the father, yet is still divine and eternal in a sense. Um, the reason he can do that is because he's operating on this sort of like unchristianized Platonism that has this scale of being, right? And so the scale of being is a gradation. It's not a it's not a binary distinction like like Christians affirm between creature and creator. It's yeah. a it's a scale of being. And so the, if the sun is high enough up on the scale of being in Arius's view that even though he's a creature and even though he had a beginning, 
because that beginning was prior to the creation of time, he can still be said to be eternally eternal and divine, just not in the same sense or the same way that the Father is. It's not until you get the Socinians, as you kind of rightly pointed out, um, and, and sort of this, this more Aristotelian category, which denies that scale of being in a way, um, that yeah. you have this firm statement that the Son isn't divine at all. There's not really all that many people in the history of the church prior to that point that would straight up say the son is not divine in any sense. Um, right. Even like the Ebionites would say he was adopted and became divine. So I think that what you're pointing out is really important that this, this confusion between the creature and creator distinction um, that happens, it also ends up um, not only is that problematic if we start to divinize regular like creatures, but right. it's problematic if you don't maintain that distinction when talking about the difference between the fa- the son's divine nature and the son's human nature, right? In one sense, we would say the son is eternal, divine, uncreated, infinite, all of the all of the things that God is. But in another sense, in reference to his humanity, we would say he's a created creature, right? The son is a creature in reference to his humanity because his humanity is a created human nature, a concrete, actual created human nature. So if you have this confusion where you're not, not properly preserving that, you either end up in this sort of weird theology in these cultic senses where the son isn't fully or truly God, because he is a creature, so the, the the divine reality and the the creator reality that is is united in Christ can't be united because there's no understanding of of the incarnation itself, the hypostatic union. Um, or you end up where EFS does, or I I think we talked about it last week. Some of this weird stuff that's going on with James White and this kenosis stuff, you end up yeah. there where now all of a sudden you're blending creature creator categories because you're now communicating attributes across not only to the hypostasis, but to the divine nature or the human nature, respectively. So I think this is a really important um, kind of conversation, even though it, even though it's doesn't necessarily seem related to the fact that the, the how we talk about the Son is truly God. One of the main problems we run into it and we're running into actively is that we are losing sight in the incarnation of what it means for Christ to be truly God. And yes. so a la kenosis or James Whiteism, whatever you want to call it, um, the son's divine attributes start to be compromised, right? A la EFS, the son's divine status as fully, truly God, not subject to any sort of subordination or submission, starts to become compromised. And so it's we have to land that, we have to understand that for Christ to be truly God— that has to mean immutability. It has to mean uh, infinite, you know, infinity. It has to mean eternality. It has to mean all of the things that it means for the Father and the Spirit, not just as a separate entity that is also those things, but as the very same eternality, the very same infiniteness, whatever it might be. Um, and the other thing, just maybe before we sort of move on a little bit, and then I think probably start to wrap things up a little bit. This also calls out something that I think is really important, and this is going to sound a little bit, um, maybe a little bit dicey, but just bear with me. The Apostles' Creed is not a particularly specific or narrow doctrinal statement. So there's not a lot in the Apostles' Creed that a Jehovah's Witness could not honestly affirm right? Or, or members of this, this, um, heretical cultic group that you used to be a part of or other similar groups. There's well, not a lot, yeah. there's not a lot in there that they couldn't, and this is the key, couldn't honestly affirm, right? right. There, there's a lot that there's a lot of cults and, and sub-Orthodox groups that will say 
either out of ignorance or deceptively that they affirm this or that or the other thing, right? James White says he affirms right. divine simplicity. It's been handily demonstrated that what he's teaching is not in, in accord with any concept of divine simplicity that anyone in the Reformed tradition prior to maybe 50 or 60 years ago would have recognized as divine simplicity, right? So there's people that either because they're, they're ignorant or they're incorrect or sometimes they're straight out being deceptive. Um, I'm not saying one way or another which one James White is, except I don't, I don't think he's being deceptive. Um, I think he's yeah. honestly approaching this. I just think he's wrong. Um, that's not the case with the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is is broad enough that some heretical groups could affirm it. And this is why, actually, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, or, or more accurately, the Eastern Catholic Church from the early patristic era, the Apostles' Creed was never formally adopted by the East. It was never formally adopted by the East as an actual ecumenical confession. The only actual full ecumenical confession that was ever adopted by the Church was the Nicene Creed, and then the uh, the amendment or the expansion in the Chalcedonian definition. That's it. That's it. That's the only ecumenical uh, full-on ecumenical confessional document that the entire church throughout the whole history of the church has adopted is that that initial document. So the Nicene Creed and then the Nicene Constantinople, uh, you know, uh, expansion and then the Council of Chalcedon's proclamation. That's it. So when we're talking about what the church actually confesses, we're actually talking about those documents. We're not necessarily talking about the Apostles' Creed. We're not necessarily talking about the Athanasian Creed, although those are both very useful tools for doctrinal edification. We're not even talking about the Reformed Confessions because those yeah. are not universally adopted, right? The Lutherans yeah. don't hold them. The Arminians don't hold them. The Catholics don't hold them. The Eastern Orthodox don't hold them. But we're not talking about even something as niche <laughs> as the Westminster Confession or the Three Forms of Unity, right? right. Which, relatively speaking, are adopted by a, a fairly small portion of the church. We're talking about core essential doctrines that have yep. been universally affirmed by the whole church for over seven, almost 1,700 years now. Right. That's what we're running into with people who are sort of renegotiating some of these things in these these ways that actually the logic of why and how they're renegotiating some of these things is strikingly similar to the logic you described that led this group to sort of renegotiate these doctrines. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting. Uh, you had made a comment there um, about the Apostles' Creed. Someone from that Unitarian church had visited my PCA church and like we recite one of the creeds every week along in just part of the liturgy church what do you believe i believe in god the father right. right and at the end of it they remarked to me wow that you know great exposition on first peter great this and i'm really glad they said the apostles creed and not the nicene creed and i was just like yeah of course you would say like because because i felt the exact same way because i remember as a unitarian my friends brought me to one of their uh evangelical churches in college and and it was one of those big like big feels kind of Pentecostally Baptist something weird hodgepodge of feels that that happened, and the main pastor wasn't there, and the assistant pastor just preached on the on the Apostles' Creed, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool, nice." But then he, as soon as he got to like Christ, he says, "Jesus is God," and that was the whole sermon. And I just tuned out the whole time. I was yeah. out. I was done. Um, but what's interesting, I wanted to read another statement from this little pamphlet they have. And again, and to their credit, these guys have written whole books, right? This right. isn't just a, and I, I know you've actually interacted with some of these guys, I think, um, or at least heard of, heard them discussed on other podcasts like Dale Tuggy yeah. and some of these guys who like I've met, I've hung out with them. I've had coffee with them and talked to them. Like 
they're nice guys and I enjoy talking to them and I think they're smart. I think yeah. they're just, they are willfully rejecting these things. And then there's other people that are not necessarily willfully rejecting it. They're just in the flow. Right. But like, listen to this lot, listen to this argument here against the Trinity and tell me like this to me just sounds exactly like what that person on Twitter was saying to me about subscriptionism and exactly yeah. like what some of these guys are saying about these orthodox ecumenical doctrines like simplicity, inseparable operations, and our orthodox Trinitarian categories of the processions, right? Quote, Jesus' own words do not seem to support the belief of most churches, unquote. Now, just, you know, they've done their little pamphlet. They've done their, how could he be tempted by the devil when God cannot be tempted? Right. Studying Matthew 4.1 and James 1.3, you know, and on the surface, this is how I would pester my friends in college who were reading Wayne Grudem Systematic and really, you know, at the time they just loved on me and prayed for me. And I'm grateful for them because if they weren't patient with me, I wouldn't have had any friends. Um, <laughs> but like, I would just bombard them like this because this is how I grew. And every heretic has his Bible verse, right? Right. Every person that denies these essential core doctrines has a Bible verse that they can point to. They're not doing it flippantly right. in most cases, but listen to this quote, right? Jesus does not seem to support this belief, quote, we must allow scripture to be our only source for truth, unquote, which is literally the, every confessional statement in the reformed tradition has that line. Yeah. That scripture is the final authority, but it's not. Now, this is what's interesting. Our only source for truth. What we don't say in the reformed confessions is uh, solo scriptura or scripture right. divorced from the church in our reading. Uh, and then they say they go on to say in this document, quote, Jesus never said he was God, which is also not accurate if you read the New Testament closely, but uh, or the second member of the Trinity. But if Jesus is not God, how can you be saved? Uh, and then they go on and say, you know, Jesus, uh, it's belief in Jesus as the son of God, not God, the son. In fact, Jesus prayed to the father and he said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've saved. Yeah. Uh, or whom you've sent. And it's fascinating to me. And, and I think this is why I got myself into that Twitter spat was because I'm seeing in Orthodox, you know, and to be fair, these are Orthodox people. They're not people that are denying the Trinity. They're not denying, you know, essential doctrines, but they are starting down the slope of these arguments and that the logic of their argumentation is the same that I used as a Unitarian to argue against the Trinity. Right. Oh yeah, for the sure. Same argument. And I, I had this conversation. Somebody said, well, you know, the Westminster is just wrong because it affirms infant baptism. And there's not a single verse in the Bible that explains that, that prescribes infant baptism, which by the way, uh, there are. But even if you reject that premise, okay. I, and I literally just replied right back. I said, show me the verse that says God is one in being and three in person. Yeah. Point me yeah. to a single proof text that articulates the doctrine of the Trinity as we find in the creeds. And you won't find it right. because yeah. that's not how we do theology. Right. Theology is the practice of searching the whole counsel of God and understanding, well, and this is what did it for me, right? I, I you know, to, to be a little personalized here, what finally started to, to, to stack the deck, as it were, in orthodoxy was to see, okay, here's these creator attributes. Here's these creaturely attributes. The father, un, un, I don't think anyone denies that the father is God that I've ever Except encountered. Except William Lane Craig. That's, un, I'm... You know, you just had to go and make my day worse. <laughs> yeah. uh, He's part of God. 
but not that's, for, not, that's not the totality of God. Oh, anyway, that's a different that's episode. Partialism, Patrick. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I don't even know what it is. I don't know what it is. It's bad. But the um, but a lot of but these groups deny uh, the deity of the Son and the Spirit. They even deny the personhood of the Spirit. Right. But that's another discussion. Um, but what I started to have to confront was okay. So God is Creator, and I was reading Bavink's Wonderful Works of God, which was honestly like really formative for me in this discussion and in this journey because he just demolishes everything else he shows right. that the problems on both extremes either tritheism or modalism yeah and he's like both have to be rejected because there's this stark creator creature distinction and is christ creator or creature is the son more specifically creator or creature and he's given specifically you know we'll just focus on creation he's the creator and the Father is the creator, and the Holy Spirit is the creator. So what do I do with that? And yet they're distinct. They're clearly not just one person or one hypostasis, if we want to get a little more technical, uh, just manifesting in different ways. They're clearly interaction. There's interaction. Yeah. There's personal distinction. You know, and, and Matthew Barrett does a beautiful job of this in Simply Trinity, locating that not in some kind of roles or hierarchy, but in the processions. Right. And it's it's like our, our orthodox doctrine of the Trinity has all of these things baked in, but I had to reconcile that. And you know, these pithy little statements and the longer argumentation that I had as a Unitarian could not hold up against Christ's creatorhood. And if he's creator, then he's God. And if he's God, and I believe there's only one God, which my commitment to monotheism is absolute. So what does that mean then? And, and then you end up with the church's very beautiful hard-wrought doctrine of the trinity that is simple in its expression and infinite in its mystery yeah. and absolutely essential to what we believe and, and and like reading the bible with this has been totally i've been reading the bible my whole life but it feels like for the last few years i've really begun to read it for the first time which is amazing um but yeah basically uh orthodoxy is good and having and yeah do our confessional standards sit above scripture absolutely not yeah but in, but I think I think the Westminster's a pretty accurate exposition of the doctrine contained in the text, and yeah. the same thing I would say for Chalcedon and and Nicaea. They are expositing to us a mysterious and a weighty doctrine. And I like what James Dolezal said when when we interviewed him on DT. Like, we should expect God to be a little weird to us. Like, we we should expect that the way that God exists is is something we don't necessarily have a, a, a framework for and right. can't model. Yeah, like we should expect that. Why is that a problem that we can't one-to-one -one explain God? Isn't well, that kind of the, the point? Yeah. I mean, it, there's all sorts. That's a whole different episode. but For sure. I, I think one of the things to sort of maybe bring this all back around as we wrap up, the, yeah. the particular person you were interacting with online is someone that I also have interacted with online pretty extensively. Um, I think mostly when I was in the Reform Pub, that's where I was butting heads with him, but not not exclusively. And one of the one of the striking statements that I remember him saying one time, we were talking about EFS, and he said something like, "Well, Wayne Grudem is the finest systematic theologian of our of our day." Stop it. And you know, I, I don't want to just bash on Wayne Grudem. He he no. he clearly loves Jesus. He is an excellent Greek scholar. He's 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 very good at what he's trained to do. Um, what he's trained to do is not systematic theology, unfortunately. And so if you read his systematic theology and he, when he introduces his methodology, his methodology is you, you pick the topic you're wanting to talk about, the doctrine you're wanting to talk about, you list out all of the verses that talk about that doctrine, 
Um, most of them will be totally 100% consistent and you'll have a few outliers. And so the work of systematic theology is basically synthesizing those outliers into what the rest of them say. And that's not entirely wrong. I mean, there's an element of systematic theology where like, yeah, for the most part, the Bible is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's, it's not as though you're taking a hundred verses that all say something radically different and, and trying to mesh them all together into some sort of like, I don't know, like bouillabaisse of theology. Mostly you, you look at the verses, the scriptures are all pretty straightforward, right? Genesis one, uh, John one, Colossians one, Hebrews one. Like that's my, right. my magic formula for the the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. Are those that episode four, really helped me by the way. Yeah. I so those are the, the four, those are the four passages you go to. They all say the exact same thing when you understand them right. and you don't even have to do all that much hard work to understand them. Right. Yeah. But the idea that we just, we just list out verses and then we just kind of like plug the ones that are outliers. We figure out how to plug them into the system. Um, that is exactly what the heretics do. Right. And the right. difference between what Wayne Grudem has come up with and what the heretics have come up with is not necessarily the methodology. It's not necessarily the questions that are being asked. It's not even the the sort of wholesale rejection of creeds and confessions as a useful tool for us or a boundary marker or anything like that. It's just a different outcome. It's it's a different emphasis on which verses are going to be the defining verses. So instead of instead of all of the verses that speak of Christ's divinity being the 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 um, baseline. Uh, he is the firstborn of all creation becomes the baseline. And so all other verses get interpreted in light of that, right? Or um, Christ pointing, you know, people to God, the father, who's the one true God and Christ, his only son, that becomes the baseline without, you know, without any sort of um, understanding. And so that, that's what I want to kind of take away from this is we have to look at, we have to look at the theology that's been handed down to us. Semper Reformanda does not and never has meant uh, that we continually start from scratch and re redo the doctrines from scratch and kind of hope that we come to the orthodox conclusion. That's not at all what Semper Reformanda means. In its original context, Semper Reformanda actually meant reforming the church in light of her confessional statements. Come on. Because the church had walked away from the confessional statements in a variety <laughs> of ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, these are all these are all authentic Tony Arsenal sound effects, by the way. <laughs> um, so so we have to understand. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. There are some really good, wise brothers that are saying things like the scriptures need to be interpreted through the lens of the Council of Nicaea. I've said stuff like that in the past. I sure. don't actually think that that's true, and I don't think that's what even people who are saying that are actually doing when they come to the scriptures. What they're doing is they're coming to the scriptures and they're using the Council of Nicaea like they would a commentary on their shelf or like they would a sermon that they heard that morning on the Lord's Day. It's a it's a teaching tool that the church has given us. The one difference that I will point out, and I've said this before, is that when the pastor, right, Second Helvetic Confession, right, the word of God preached is the word of God. So so although it's the word of God in a different way, it's not as though we have the Bible and that's the word of God. And then what the pastor says, like, we can just toss that out if we don't like it. That's not it. He's right. preaching. He's a the pastoral ministry in the pulpit is a prophetic ministry, not in a thus saith the, sen the Lord sense necessarily, not in Wayne Grudem's weird kind of they might be wrong sense. But it is a prophetic ministry, and so it's not just some guy's opinion when they're preaching from the pulpit. 
right? It's a ministerial authority that insofar as they're preaching the word of God, it is the word of God that they're preaching. Well, the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, the, the Creed of Nicaea, although it's a little bit less refined, and the Chalcedonian definition specifically, it's the sum of the entire teaching ministry of the church from that era. It's the it's not just a, a private opinion. This is why I, I don't put as much weight in the Athanasian Creed. It's a it's a private opinion written by some unknown Latin monk. Right. Sometime in the fourth, fifth, or sixth century. Right. The Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition specifically, and the sort of new confessional creedal statement that they represent, is the sum of all of the teaching authority invested in all 318 bishops that were present at the Nice Council of Nicaea, or I suppose 315, because three of them wouldn't sign and Arius wasn't allowed to come in. Right. So so it's not just a matter of rejecting some document that was written 1700 years ago. It's not just a matter of questioning that it's a matter of questioning the entire teaching authority invested in the pastoral ministry of the church in that time frame. Um, it's a big deal. And we really should be careful about it. The same way that when your pastor says something uh, that you look a little bit sideways at, it's good and right to not just accept it if it doesn't seem to line up with scripture. Right. But at the same time, when your pastor is praying and he says in your name and he's talking to the father, you don't just up and leave that church. You probably don't even do anything about it because you understand it was probably just a slip of the tongue um, or a, or a sort of an idiosyncrasy in the way he prays. Right. That's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about actually departing from the teaching of the church in its full summary form from that era. Now, sometimes that's what you have to do, right? Luther was actually departing from the the more or less summary teaching of the entire church as he knew it in his yeah. era when he took his stand. He was returning to the summary teaching of the previous eras, so it's right. not as though he was standing out on his own uh, nowhere. Like that that narrative is totally false. Right. Well, Calvin quotes Augustine so many times. Well, yeah, the- yeah. It's like the second. It, Augustine is the second most quoted source in the Institute, second only to Paul. Right. Right. But. But the point is, though, we need to not just ignore what's come before. And in terms of the topic for the night and sort of your background, that departure that this heretical group that you were a part of, that you've come out of now by the grace of God, praise the Lord, um, Mm. they're making a lot of the same, they made a lot of the same methodological movements and asked a lot of the same questions and are making a lot of the same mistakes that the the theology proper deep Partners, I don't know. We, we need to come up with some sort of handy name for them. I've been calling Theology them the, improper. <laughs> there you go. That sounds like actually like a, a like a good name for a bad podcast. Maybe Owen like- Strahan should rename his podcast that. Um, oh, no, no, that that one I will. You know what? I I said I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to do it. Okay. <laughs> so I just think when we when we start to see that happening, right? This this is why calling those groups Arians or Sassinians or all of the the labels that we've applied to them rightfully, and I think we can defend that, why that's important is because it's actually naming this theology for what it is. That is not to say again and again, hear me say it, hand to the Lord. I don't think that James White is going to hell. I don't think Owen Strahan is going to hell. I don't think Wayne Grudem or Bruce Ware or any of the guys that are teaching this are going to hell. I, I That's not that's way above my pay grade to know for sure. But everything that I've seen and everything that I've read and all of the interactions I've had with them, I really do think they love and trust the Lord Jesus and they believe orthodox things about him. They just can't articulate it clearly. 
and they yeah. can't understand why what they're saying over here in a sort of secondary sense contradicts their more primary confession over here. Um, that's actually starting to seem like it's not the case with James White. He seems to be making some primary departures, which is really, really scary. But I think we have to recognize the importance of understanding the full divinity of Christ and how yes. how these other ways that we reevaluate and renegotiate other doctrines sort of subtly creep in and and maybe mess that up. So I'll let you kind of have the final thought since, since, you know, if there's anything else you want to add about this theology or the, your background or anything like that before we kind of wrap it up. Yeah, well, I just want to, I'm going to take this occasion to shout out to the Westminster Standards real quick and just read really quickly from those confessions. And I want, and I want to contrast this with the kind of, well, if Jesus did this and God did that, then how can he be God? The kind of stuff that I used to do all the time that sounds very biblical yeah. on the surface. Now contrast that with the Westminster Confession and the larger catechism. This is chapter eight of Christ the Mediator, article two. Uh, and then I'll read the larger catechism and then kind of conclude some thoughts here. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternally God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, unquote. I just want to pause that real quick and say, Jesus got like splinters in his hand. Like he, he yeah. experienced what it is to be fully human. Yeah, It's not as though he just sort of coasted through. I, I think you guys talked about this uh, a week ago or recently. Like he's not Superman. Right. Like he's, he, we're talking about a full, true human nature with all of our infirmity. He got sick. He got the flu problem. I don't know if it would have been the flu back then, but like he experienced the physical exhaustion. We see that clearly in the scripture. And I think the rest just by nature of, of his existence as fully man, it's not hard to understand that, but without sin, and then carrying on being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary made of her substance. So that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in the one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which very heavily echoes Chalcedon, right? Yeah. Which person is very God and very man, or truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? And what a perfect mediator. And why, we might ask, why should the mediator be God? Well, the Westminster divines beat me to that in question 38. And they say, it was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. I'll plug DT briefly here and reference an episode we had with Sam Renahan last year on impassibility. And Sam said, look, if, if the divine nature could suffer, then the incarnation was pointless. There's no need for the incarnation if divinity can suffer. And precisely because God cannot suffer, there had to be this hypostatic union. And again, it's not that the Father and Son don't become, or the Father and Spirit don't become incarnate. It's only the hypostasis or the person of the Son that is 
the terminus, right, with the human nature is united to that hypostasis. Old deity, right? Paul says it. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right. And it's, I'm I, I moved to worship by these words, right? But this one who we worship, he, and, and again, the confession, I think, helps us there in 8.2. He's one person. Yeah. We're not talking yeah. about an historian Christ, where there's a divine Christ and a human Christ. One glorious person that is the union of the eternal son of God, fully God, and a perfect, full human nature with all our infirmities except sin. Right. And man, it just gives me chills to think about. And, and nothing I ever sang or believed or held as a Unitarian came close to that in, in the sheer mystery, in the glory of it, and in my assurance that this Savior will see me through. Because how much more assurance do I have when it is that the second person of the Trinity, the, the, this one who is fully God, co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father and Spirit, became incarnate, identifies with my weakness, suffers in my place, fulfills my covenant breaking with his covenant obedience. And then his covenant obedience is, is counted to my account. And my debt is paid by his suffering. It, yeah. it, it is so much more beautiful and so much more expansive than anything. And I, and I know to, to people who've grown up in the church and have grown up believing this, God bless you. I envy you to some extent. But for me, it's like this is all fresh yeah. and incredible to see the glory of Christ, to see the scandal. To quote Matthew Barrett brought this up, the scandal of the incarnation. How scandalous is it that the eternal son would, would humiliate himself like this for us, for you and me, for, yeah. for people that hate him, yeah. that he would humiliate himself to say, I will take upon myself without changing who I am, without any, any change in my essential nature, but I will take upon myself this fully human and true human nature and, and, and bind myself to this in this incarnation forever for the sake of my enemies. For the sake of those who put me on the cross, yeah. For those that that would have driven the nails themselves if they were there, because they hate me, because the the creature hates the creator, and and we replace him, right? Romans one and three, we replace him with the the created order, yeah. And he loved those ones enough to endure to set aside all this, and that's what is getting at in Colossians, right? He didn't set aside divinity; he didn't cease to be God. He set aside all these rights and privileges and glories and suffered and humbled himself yeah. in the form of a servant. And it is so beautiful and mysterious and overwhelming. And it makes grace so much more amazing. And it makes me that much more passionate when I see people in our circles, especially, but Orthodox Christians in general, yeah. veering into the kind of logic that I used to use to argue against orthodoxy. So basically, Gloria Patri, right? Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, yeah. world without end. Glory be to our triune God and this inseparable operations of this God that work for our good and our salvation. And ultimately we get to experience eternity with God because of the work of Christ and the indwelling of the spirit and the sending of the father. And it is so good. And we could go on for hours, but yeah. I know we're 
time. <laughs> we are out of time. I can tell you with certainty that right now you could run through a wall. You just seem <laughs> totally jacked up uh, and yeah, ready man. to run against a troop or over a wall. Uh, I don't know what, what any of that means. Does. I don't know what any of that means. Uh, we need some good Old Testament scholars to fill us in on that. Right. But it's definitely I, the Kool Aid man. I'm oh, not going to yeah. try. Yeah, I'm not going to try to to expand on that because it would result in another hour and a half long episode. A lot of these themes are going to come up, folks, in future episodes. So we'll come back to them uh, in the coming weeks as we talk about what it means for Christ to be truly God, and then as we talk about how how it is that these natures are united without confusion and all those things that we talked about during Chalcedonian uh, application last week. So I'm going to wrap things up. Blake, you know, it's been great to have you on. I'm, you know, I remember when you first told me when I first met you and you were, you were, I think you were still in this other, uh, this other group and we're coming out of it. And I know, I mean, I know that you have sacrificed things to, to pursue truth and pursue an Orthodox confession of faith. And so I, I just want to commend you for that. Cause I, I don't, I would say that I know how hard that is, but I really don't have any clue. I, I can understand how difficult that would be. And, and I think that it's commendable. And I think it's important for us to recognize that these are not neutral doctrines. These are not doctrines that, um, that you can take or leave or renegotiate. These are doctrines that people have died for in the past. They're doctrines yeah. that um, people sacrifice all sorts of things uh, now. You, you ask a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness who's come to faith, in, in true faith in Christ, and has come out of those cults, um, and they've sacrificed a lot. So I think that's commendable. I think it's a good example for you to set for a lot of us fat, lazy Christians who've just taken our orthodoxy for granted, that these are truths that need to be pursued and sought after. Uh, so I'm going to leave it there. Uh, but Blake, see if we can do this without any prep time here, because we don't use a safety net. Blake, until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. <laughs>